everyone, this is Will and welcome to this brand new and exciting episode of The Missing Piece. Now, if you follow the news closely, more than four weeks, the war in Ukraine continues to pose threat not only to the people in Ukraine, but also on the impact across the continent. Now, on one hand, that you might ask the question, how far does Vladimir Putin going to take? But on the other hand, is there any solution for the West and the international community to put this effort together to stop Vladimir Putin? Now, based on the latest article that one political scientist pointed out that not only the West should make the greater effort, but also one country might seem to be one of the solutions, which is Turkey. So that's why today it's my great honor to invite Mr. Max Hess. And Mr. Hess, it's a fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute and a political risk analyst and a consultant based in London. And he specializes in geoeconomics and Russian foreign policy. Mr. Hess, and welcome to The Missing Piece. Thank you for having me. I look forward to chatting. No problem, the pleasure is all mine. Now, Mr. Hess, let's get to the questions right away. Again, initially when I discover you, because of this amazing article that you wrote and entitled, Why the West Should Make Peace with Erdogan Right Now. And you know, again, as I mentioned in the intro, the world continues to follow the war in Ukraine, even though that we have not heard so much compared with the beginning of the war. But within the article that you pointed out so critically, and I quote, you said, Atop the list of unsavior partners, the West urgently needs better relation today. It's the sitting Turkish President Erdogan, and it will take a long time before the West can genuinely trust him. Mr. Hess, can you help us to understand what does that mean when you wrote, it will take a long time before the West can trust the leader of Turkey today. What is the scenario of the relationship at this moment? So Turkey is, of course, a NATO member state. Uh, it's one of its original members, uh, but it has been chafing with the alliance quite a bit in recent years. We can really trace this back to the first uh, four years of the Obama administration, when initially there was a lot of hope from the Turkish side that relations with the U.S. would get better. There had been some tensions over Iraq policy previously, but then the Arab Spring came and Obama initially spoke out quite positively regarding a lot of these developments, including regarding a new government in Egypt that came to power that was very closely allied with uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, the Turkish Prime Minister, and his own Justice and Development Party in Turkey, who have used the form of political Islam uh, and slight nationalism broadly on the center-right uh, to really consolidate power in Turkey over the last uh, 20, 25 years and sort of reverse some of the secularization trends and the like. But yeah, until then, Turkey was broadly seen as this good partner for the West and in some ways a model for political Islam. Then when there was the coup in Egypt against that uh, Muslim Brotherhood-led government and the war in Syria breakout, tensions really began to rise between Turkey and the West. Turkey began to feel that its own concerns weren't being listened to. They were not happy that the U.S. stood by while there was that coup in Egypt. They were not happy that the Obama administration did not follow its own red lines on Syria and intervene. And then tensions really rose 
over the differing alliances in the Syrian conflict, as well as the growing relationship between the U.S. and the Kurdish parties there, who are very closely aligned uh, with one of the Kurdish groups in Turkey that Turkey considers a terrorist group and has been fighting a conflict with for, for decades now. So this sort of growing lack of trust really began then. Uh, but there was no initial sign that it would move it towards Russia. Russia was also on the opposite side of Turkey uh, in Syria. And in 2015, they even had a major crisis when a Turkish plane shot down a Russian plane. The first time a NATO plane had done that to a Russian aircraft since uh, the Korean War. Now, uh, what changed was the next year was the coup attempt in Turkey, mm. uh, which Erdogan, for um, reasons only he knows, fully blamed on the United States and on a Turkish dissident who is a former ally of his, um, named Fethullah Gulen, who does live in the United States, and then the United States has refused to extradite to Turkey. Uh, but he said that the U.S. had actively supported the coup. So this led to immediate rapprochement of Russian-Turkish relations with Erdogan, um, calling Moscow, ultimately agreeing to build a new gas pipeline to get around one of the gas pipelines that had been canceled as a result of Putin's first invasion of Ukraine, and then ultimately going so far as to buy Russian uh, defense missiles rather than U.S. ones, for which the U.S. actually put some sanctions on Turkey's military industrial complex, despite it also being a neighbor. Now, there are many other issues that came up from time to time, primarily Armenia, Azerbaijan, uh, Libya, that caused uh, frictions and tensions between both Turkey and the West and occasionally Turkey and Russia. But broadly, this narrative is, is what has happened over the last 10 years to where Turkey ended up in a position where it's kind of frenemies with both the West and frenemies with um, the Putin regime, but has been moving more from the enemies towards friends side with the Putin regime and more from friends towards enemies um, with the Western side. Uh, of course, the domestic developments in Turkey and him arresting uh, much of the opposition has also um, affected relations with the West. So, you know, that really got us to, to where we are today. Mm -hmm. um, and as you know, we, we initially began this on the basis of the war between Russia and Ukraine, where I come from the background as a Eurasianist uh, and looking at, the, at the, the region through those countries primarily. And for me, it's quite clear that the West strategy to defeat uh, Russia is essentially to help Ukraine win the war by waging its own economic war against Russia. The sanctioning of the Russian Central Bank, the default that officially happened yesterday, the sanctions on Russian oil, gas, so on and so forth, Russian money. Um, those are really aimed at, at stopping Putin's ability from being able to wage a war because he shows no sign of no longer desiring to wage a war. Now, th there's a number of pros and cons to this strategy. Of course, the number one pro is that it's a way to fight back without raising the risk of direct Russian-Western military conflict, which would be nuclear and catastrophic for the whole world, and is therefore unthinkable. Um, but, you know, one of its costs is that it has real geopolitical ramifications and countries try to get around sanctions, and that can change motivations. Mm. Uh, Turkey, for example, as part of the sort of early stages of all this uh, decline in its relations with the West, uh, was accused of helping Iran get around some, some of its sanctions, uh, even as the Obama administration was then negotiating to, to remove them. So I see Turkey really as sort of in this linchpin role now where uh, for the sanctions to be fully effective, it needs to shut off Turkey as a route for Russian money to get in and out of the country. It needs to have Turkey join the Western sanctions regime regarding Russian oil, uh, trade and gas so that Russia can't just pump gas through Europe's southern corridor in and thereby cut off the Azeri supplies, the main alternative pipeline supplies. Uh, it also has to 
needs Turkish support to keep those banking sanctions um, really tight and to make sure that Russia is not able or, or not fully able to blockade Ukraine's port through Turkey's control of the Black Sea. So, mm. as I say in the article, you know, there's no intent in, in me for whitewashing Erdogan in this. He's not a Democrat. He's a horrible um, uh, ruler in many ways for people, and he has quite wacky economic ideas that are impoverishing the country as we speak. Uh, but he has managed to play Turkey into this strategic position. And I think that the West needs to recognize that and say, okay, for now, uh, we have to essentially uh, let things lie with Erdogan. And as the article says, make peace with him again uh, to focus on the primary threat to the international order uh, and peace, which is Russia. Uh, rather than Erdogan. That doesn't mean we should allow him a free hand in Syria to do as he pleases with the Kurds, um, but that we should seek a deal there. And I think because he's destroying the economy, there's the opportunity now to make a deal on the economic front rather than on a political or democratic front, which would have higher costs to the West. Max, thank you for this amazing explanation. Now, before we moving along the conversation regarding Turkey, but let's go back to the foreign policy from the U.S. side. Now, during the previous conversation that you and I we just had briefly, I, I believe most of the world tend to believe that U.S. today is trying to stop the threat of Russia. So, in other words, U.S. is trying to uh, uh, trying to uh, by all means uh, stop Vladimir Putin, you know, from uh, from uh, expending its military or its uh, uh, political power. But deep down inside, that again. In reality, despite what everyone says, the method or the approaches from the U.S. government has been very slow, and also the, the effectiveness of stopping Putin has not been that effective. So I guess that really begs the question is, how much interest do you think today that the U.S. government is interested in stopping Vladimir Putin? So in other words, if U.S. is genuinely interested asking for allies and asking for help from other countries to stop Putin, U.S. government could have done more, but so far we have not seen a better result or we have not seen something way more effective than what is right now. How would you explain that? Sure. Uh, well, I would say I think the U.S. is actually, uh, and the European Union, um, have been remarkably effective and fast acting in their introduction of these sanctions. We saw the Russian central bank uh, sanction, which some had termed sort of the nuclear option in terms of sanctions for just four days after Putin's invasion. Um, and we've seen Russia essentially cut off from the global economy uh, in a way that uh, no, no country has been since perhaps Japan in 1941 uh, in, in the lead up to the attack on Pearl Harbor when there was a similar set of sanctions imposed by the United States uh, on Japan. But the action that it has taken is only in reaction to a very, very large force. And it's quite clear that Putin has no intent of halting his war on Ukraine, even as it blows up his economy from the inside. So just to give you some figures, the number of Russian people living under poverty in the first three months of the year alone, so that's only the first five weeks of the war, went up 69%. Mm. Uh, the Russian and Central Bank is saying unemployment is going to go up 7% this year, and that's already likely being massaged down quite a bit. Russia can't export a large number of products and can't import a large number of products, and it hasn't found a white knight savior in, for example, China because Beijing has been unwilling to open up the credit lines and provide Russia alternative sources of financing. So uh, Russia is going rapidly to not only undo any gains in the quality of life that it 
uh, Russell's experience under the first, you know, Putin's first 10 years, but is rapidly going to go back into the economic collapse of the 1990s. However, with a regime that is single-mindedly dedicated to waging this war of aggression against Ukraine and has no other major pri policy priorities at the moment, uh, that's not enough to stop it, right? Mm. It will stop it. Russia is willing very much to fight to the last Ukrainian, right. regardless of how many um, Russians die uh, in, in that war, which is a, a horrible reality and a tragedy. The West has also been very successful at bringing on a lot of non-traditional allies in this. South Korea, which didn't join previous sanctioned regimes because of concerns over North Korea, uh, joined even Singapore and Switzerland, historically neutral countries. Um, so, you know, where I see the real failure is in the messaging around this. The West needs to prepare uh, Westerners and the population to understand that we are in an economic war with Russia. And that will have real costs to the economies here as well. And without making that understood and getting popular support for that reality, eventually I worry that Western sanctions unity will start to break. <laughs> We've seen the first steps of this in Bulgaria, which had a very pro-Western government that is now in slow motion collapsing nominally over other issues other than Russia, but where other pro-Russian parties will use their influence to try to undermine um, the gains that have been made there and, and, and potentially to weaken the NATO alliance slightly. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think the West needs to be looking at this as not, it's not a war that can be won, this economic war in a year, just as it's clear Russia can't win the war on the ground in the year with Putin's, you know, major uh, aims to go all the way to Kiev. Um, but if we don't prepare for the long and difficult and costly reality of that, I worry that Western support will uh, splinter and, and risk falling apart. Now, do you think at this moment that the U.S. government understands that without allies and without partners, Vladimir Putin, let's just say, going back to uh, uh, Max, what you said before, he's willing to fight to the end of the day. You know, he's willing to fight to the end of the earth. But again, coming from the U.S. official side, one thing that the U.S. government has to understand is this cannot be done by one country and this can be done by one job, by one person. So in other words, do you think at this moment that the U.S. government understands that forming alliance or forming partnership, even though that means with the countries or with the partners that U.S. can may not be on a good term, that is also critical to be against Vladimir Putin, for example, China, or for example, any other countries, they might not be on a good term with the U.S., but even though they are not allies or friends with U.S. right now, but in order to fight against Vladimir Putin, it's better to put down this personal uh, differences or personal hatred, let's join effort for the ultimate goal. How much do you think the U.S. government can understand that? Uh, yeah, you know, um, I, I think there is an understanding of that. Uh, I don't think there's an understanding of how far it needs to go, and uh, perhaps there have been some steps in the wrong direction. So the major effort that we've seen has focused so far on Saudi Arabia, whose ruler Mohammed bin Salman was persona non grata uh, in Washington since the Biden administration came to power because of his murder of Jamal Khashoggi, mm. uh, the Washington Post journalist in Istanbul, actually, even though Erdogan has made peace with um, MBS just this week as well. Um, and, you know, that's really focused on the oil market, and that's really important. And uh, I certainly think uh, MBS, uh, like um, Erdogan, is not uh, the kind of person who I would ideally like to be uh, partners and friends with. But sometimes you have to deal with realities that 
uh, you have to, you know, say he's a scoundrel, but he's our scoundrel is an old sort of phrase in American politicking. Now, personally, I see Russia using gas as a political weapon, uh, even more important than uh, oil. So I think Turkey is a more strategically important partner um, on that regard than um, oil is, uh, and therefore Saudi Arabia. Uh, but of course, because of domestic political concerns and the importance of Saudi's seat at OPEC, uh, there has, has been sort of a prioritization there. I think, you know, it, it would be preferable to have prioritized um, improving relations with uh, Erdogan, but we may still see that. We just saw a U.S. delegation in Turkey um, almost simultaneously with the Saudi delegation. Uh, so there's some signs that efforts go on there. Just to answer the one other point you raised, you know, China, I mean, of course, if the West and China united against Russia, uh, that would be game over. The Kremlin would have no major sanctions That's backdoor. That's right. And, and, you know, the, even if Turkey fully supported them, there's nothing they could do. Now, there's two issues with that. One is I don't think uh, right now, I'm, I'm certainly not a China watcher or, or, or specialist by any of I haven't seen any indication from Beijing that, that that offer is being made. And of course, while they're not funding the Russian war machine through credits and the like, we have seen a real tremendous increase in alumina exports to Russia, uh, funding some of the metal industry that has been sanctioned. Uh, so I think China will continue to profit where it does, just like in 2014, signing new gas deals on the cheap for Russian supply. I mean, you know, Russia's most likely strategic outcome from this is going to be some relative level of subservience to Beijing, whether it's political or economical. Mm. Uh, that's something that'll be difficult for Putin to deal with, but that's a problem for tomorrow, not a problem for today. Right. Um, but then also, I don't think there's any willingness in the U.S., uh, for that yet, right? You know, there's still this pivot to Asia, still this idea that China is the main, um, you know, geopolitical and geoeconomic rival uh, over the long term. And I do think it's true that whatever tactics and successes and failures uh, the West encounters in its economic war with Russia, which despite the concerns I lay out, I ultimately still think it will win, uh, are seen by many in um, Washington and probably in Beijing as well. I just don't know. Um, as a blueprint for what a potential Chinese Western economic conflict might look like in the future. Mm. Max, I want to go back to the article again. This is something that you wrote. I, I think you mentioned a little bit at the beginning. And this is what you wrote, and I quote, Erdogan is also actively seeking to develop Turkey's own gas resources and potentially even link Israeli and Cypriot offshore gas field to the European pipeline network. Now, one simple question is, how likely it is going to happen for Erdogan to develop its own pipeline? So in other words, we know that, you know, by cutting off or placing sanctions on Russia and the pipeline, it's one of the major critical resources, not only for countries in Asia, but also in countries in Europe. But now this time, Erdogan, it's a smart person. He's a very, I mean, he's, uh, how can I say, a wise leader at this moment, and he knows which side of butter is on. But at this moment, let's just say hypothetically, if he decides to abandon Russia and begin to develop his own pipeline or own gas resources, how number one, how likely he's going to be successful? And number two, what does that mean for other countries in Asia and Europe? Sure. Uh, so firstly, it's important to say that despite the history of Western, in particular U.S.-Turkey tensions that we've talked about over the last 10 years, Turkey has been very central to the European Southern Gas Corridor strategy, which is to build new supplies, bringing pipeline by gas, not by LNG, 
um, into Europe uh, through a route alternative to Russia. And that route is from Azerbaijan on the west coast of the Caspian Sea through the Republic of Georgia, then through Turkey and from Turkey into Greece, Albania, Italy, and on to the wider uh, network. There's also a new interconnector that's just been open to Bulgaria uh, as well. Europe more recently has been focused on increasingly on LNG supplies. Uh, because to build that whole new stretch of pipeline uh, was quite expensive and to expand it again would be very timely, uh, very, very time sensitive. And there are some other alternative routes coming through Algeria and Morocco um, uh, across the Mediterranean as well, but they're not quite as significant. Mm. Uh, finally, Europe has some of its own gas resources in the Netherlands, which they should be pumping like crazy, but they can't because the Dutch are concerned about very small earthquakes and it's really a rather pathetic situation. Um, but uh, this has placed Turkey at the heart of the largest alternative route of, of gas pipe supplies uh, into Russia, into, into Europe. Now, during that time, however, he also built a pipeline with Russia to go through the Black Sea mm. uh, called the Turkstream Pipeline uh, that also enables Russia to send gas through Europe without having to go through Belarus or Ukraine. There, there, there's been, um, it's currently undergoing repairs, but it, but it should start uh, activity again either, either this week or later this week. Um, and so, you know, essentially to get European gas, one, to expand it significantly from Azerbaijan would take Turkish support, to significantly cut off Russian deliveries would take Turkish support because of that pipeline running between them, um, and then to potentially develop long-term alternative sources, including Cyprus, uh, Israel, and Turkey's own resources, you'd need to invest more and build even more gas infrastructure. Now, I would be worried about Europe becoming entirely dependent on Turkey for gas, just like it's very bad that it's been so dependent on uh, Russia for gas. Mm. Uh, but it's key that it's going to, it not already is an increasing part of the mix because of the opening of this pipeline uh, from Azerbaijan through to Europe. Um, but also that it's going to be an increasingly important part of the mix uh, if we're going to get Russia out of the mix. Um, so for that reason, you know, I think that, that that is particularly important. Again, the pipeline, you know, building infrastructure takes a long time. The, Israel's, the issues with Israel and Cyprus are not going to be solved in a one, two or even three year horizon uh, before any pipelines uh, get laid in the ground. But of course, markets react to predictions and ideas about stability and future supply. Uh, and, of course, the sanctions on Russia, you can plug that um, gap for Russian gas to get out of the market when we get to the stage of trying to sanction Russian gas, which I think will fully happen. Um, so, you know, uh, ultimately, Turkey is, is probably um, after Russia uh, and Qatar, which is such a large supplier of LNG, liquefied natural gas, uh, in the U.S., and in, at least from a European perspective, it's top three or four most important countries to that gas strategy. Mm. Max, I know you're very busy. I got two more questions before letting you go. Now, towards the end of the conversation, I mean, within uh, the dialogue, uh, so the article, that you mentioned something so interesting, and you said Erdogan knows he has a strong hand and is likely to make other demands. For example, he has already exerted his leverage over Sweden's and Finland's desire ascension to NATO. Now, Help us to understand, because the war in Ukraine, the countries such as Finland and Sweden, they're very active in applying the membership to be part of the NATO. But why does that even matter to Turkey? So in other words, I guess the simple question is, what is the goal for Erdogan to block or even to have a pin in on Sweden and Finland to join NATO? How does that even make sense? Because these countries on the map, 
Well, I guess we could say they're related to one way or another, but if we look at this geopolitical or economic association, Turkey shouldn't have any say in those two countries. So what was Erdogan trying to accomplish in, certain, in terms of understanding the Sweden and Finland's membership to NATO? Sure. So uh, NATO is an alliance that may be very much shaped by uh, the U.S. defense policy, but requires unanimity to join. So all members have to agree. Now, what Turkey has really stated that it hopes to gain is that its issues are primarily uh, about Finnish and Swedish support for uh, ethnic Kurdish groups, including some that it sees as allied uh, with um, what it sees as a terrorist organization, the uh, Kurdistan Workers Party or PKK, which the U.S. also officially recognizes as a terrorist organization, despite working with their sister party in, in Syria. Like I said, these politics in this region are very complicated. But what Erdogan really seems to want is a freer hand to act in Syria and to challenge some of them. He's not you know, ultimately that concerned with the dissidents who are based in Turkey and, and Sweden because they're not a major uh, threat to him. But what he's looking for are larger concessions. Uh, there are also some around more direct defense policy, including undoing Turkey's suspension from the latest U.S. fighter jet program. Uh, that's one of the results of the sanctions imposed on it over its purchase of Russian missile defenses. Um, but, you know, really Erdogan has, has a lot of things that he would quite like. Uh, and one of the foremost would be Western uh, silence is unachievable, but it's certainly a toning down of Western criticism of his uh, adherence to democratic standards. Mm. Um, and then one other is uh, potential economic support. Now, this is where I think, you know, the issue is that Erdogan is going to prioritize uh, political con concerns and political concessions rather than economic ones because he doesn't think he's driving his country's economy into the ground. But the reality is, is that he is driving his country's economy into the ground. Inflation may be 10% here in the UK or 9% uh, in the US, but it's over 70% in Turkey. Mm. Um, the, the Turkish economy has also seen foreign investors really flee over the last year. With the rising interest rate environment in the West, it's quite likely that Turkey uh, will be facing a balance of payments crisis and potentially a full-blown uh, debt crisis later this year. So I, that's why I think the time is now for the West to prioritize and make uh, offers of economic support uh, that will be relatively... Uh, less costly, at least in terms of, of uh, money and honor, or at least in terms of uh, honor and glory, uh, if not money, then, then making concessions regarding Turkey's desired policy with its domestic democracy or the Kurds in, in Syria, uh, Iraq, and, and domestically. Mm. Max, I want to wrap up our conversation with ongoing matter. Right now, as we're speaking, the world leaders are meeting for a double bill of summit starting the previous weekend and again that's also known as the g7 summit and also after that which is the nato summit now the united states has been very active in trying to regroup himself or regroup itself in terms of strengthening the relationship you know as the g7 member and also with the nato uh, allies as well now the war in ukraine is no doubt going to be a critical matter for both summit so my last question to you is, at this moment, for G7 and also for NATO, how much credibility does U.S. have today in terms of foreign policy alliance, foreign policy strategies, dealing with Putin, or even including to uh, reach out their hands to new partners, etc.? So in other words, how should the G7 members or the NATO allies continue to trust the U.S. at this moment in terms of stopping Putin or or prevent anything 
like what we're seeing today in Ukraine? Sure, I still think there's a lot of um, uh, a lot of support and a lot of belief in, in the U.S. leadership. Um, now, my concern is is that this will change as the economic costs of the war and the wider um, economic environment really are brought to bear on Western countries. So, you know, for me, it's not about just being seen as a good leader now. It's about what does the West need to do to remain a good leader for not just these early stages of the mm. war, but, but for the future. Uh, and, and that's where I think the United States needs to be willing to do things like bury the hatchet, so to speak, um, with Erdogan, take a strong leading role in supporting economies uh, that are really negatively affected by this. Uh, however, the reality is, is that no matter how good it is and how effective it is at doing it, the one big risk that we can't call a black swan risk anymore because we all know about it, even if he's not on Twitter, uh, is that Donald Trump will be not only the Republican nominee, but potentially win the 2024 uh, election in the United States, which would immediately see the U.S. go from being a leader on these efforts to uh, tucking its tail between mm -hmm. its legs and essentially capitulating relating to the Putin regime. Putin uh, and, and Trump have a very, very different relationship from uh, the relationship between any uh, other Western leader um, and, and Putin. And uh, I think that would uh, be so risky as, as to potentially precipitate a, a NATO collapse um, and really an, an, a very, very dark time uh, for the Western-led international order. That's right. And I think even though right now, 2024, it's only two years away from us. But meanwhile, given the fact that political uh, connections and, you know, political changes are already taking place in the U.S. and across the continent. And we just hope and pray that not only U.S. will continue to be the role model for this democratic system, but also understand that joint effort could bring but much better results. Again, ladies and gentlemen, Max Hess, it's a fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute and a political risk analyst and a consultant based in London, and he specializes in geoeconomics and Russia foreign policy. Mr. Hess, thank you so much for taking your time to doing the show, and we'd love to have you back on the show as we continue to watch how Turkey is going to play a significant role in the war in Ukraine. Thank you so much for doing this.